0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, it's good to be here. Glorious day. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. uh, We are currently in a series uh, called Technology. Pitfalls and pressures. There we go. Faith for Exiles. And uh, this is a series which comes out of a book uh, written by my friend uh, Dave Kinneman and uh, his co author Mark Matlock. But it's also from a study which is looking across numerous nations in the world at the moment and really like what's the future of faith and particularly looking at the millennial generation um, who are getting older, by the way. Uh, the Zoomers are coming up. Um, that's what people are calling the next younger generation, Um, but really this is a series which is looking at the concept that what we're finding is, I might get you to go forward there, my thing's not working, Uh, on resilient disciples. This is a subgroup uh, which has been discovered through the research that, uh, we'll go forward there, I might get you to have a look at that Daniel, work your magic. Oh, there's people coming. Look at this. This is fantastic. And uh, this grouping uh, uh, of different uh, cohorts that has emerged through the research basically shows us that what the research is saying from countries from Kenya to Mexico to Brazil to Canada, that effectively we have four groupings that people who were born into the Christian faith or who grew up Christian tend to fall into four categories. Number one is the prodigals. These are people who grew up Christian but have departed from their faith. They have, in a sense, deconverted. There's people who are nomads who, in a sense, still believe but have fallen out of being involved in an actual embodied in flesh Christian community. Then there's the habitual churchgoers. These are people who attend church But when you look at actually what they believe and how that is lived out in their life, um, there's a disparity between biblical Christianity and what they're actually believing. But then the good news is there's this resilient disciples emerging, which interestingly, with all the power power and pressure of post-Christian culture, that actually they're becoming better disciples. So here's the breakdown for Australia. We've looked at this every week, but realise also for some of you, this is your first time here that the research says that in Australia of those born Christian who are Christian at some stage in the 18 to 35 bracket, 38% have in a sense deconverted. This is one of the biggest numbers equal with Switzerland of all the research. So in Australia and New Zealand there is this trend of people in that age bracket deconverting. We have another 32% Um, who, in a sense, are no longer engaged in the faith. So you put those two together, you've got 70% of people, 18 to 35, in the Australian church, who, in a sense, have no longer engaged with the Christian faith. Um, Much smaller, habitual church grower group, which is like cultural Christians. But then this resilient disciple group, which is still there, still healthy cohort, and what the research does is it's looked at this group and said, what is it that the resilient disciples are doing well that they're actually not just surviving, but thriving in a time of pressure? And they looked, there were various things that actually these groups did. And uh, we just started looking at this the first uh, of these sort of factors that they did last week, where we looked at resilient disciples have this alive, uh, relational. Um, faith where Jesus is very present in the whole of their lives and today we're looking at number two which is this one. What makes resilient disciples different to everyone else in those groupings? Why are they improving in their faith? And it's because resilient disciples develop the muscles of cultural discernment. Resilient disciples develop the muscles of cultural discernment. This is something that Red for a long time has pushed into, intuitively understanding that to be a Christian at this time and place, it's essential to understand our cultural environment and to discern and understand uh, what makes it up and and, and how we can best be uh, faithful disciples in such a place. Now, to do this, we're going to open the Scriptures and we're going to actually open to the book of Daniel. Last week, uh, we looked at the book of Daniel. Daniel tells the story of a young man um, and his generation who were taken from Israel and Judah. They were taken from the places that God had given them and they were taken to a foreign land, taken to the superpower of that time, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, run by a king called King Nebuchadnezzar, And they went from a place where it was very clear what the authority was. The institutions and the authority and the power, even though sometimes they swayed and drifted and didn't fulfill what God had asked them, it was still an environment where all of the main sources of authority and power, in a sense, pushed you towards the worship of the one true God. This is Jerusalem, this is the temple, which is at the center of the city, and the whole of the city sort of flourished around the worship of God, and the temple was the center, the singular institution um, which conveyed all meaning, and and everything was centered around that in that city. They then find themselves, and we we looked at this last week, then being sent to another place, um, they find themselves in Babylon, And the central organising principle of Babylon wasn't this temple devoted to the worship of the one true God, Yahweh of Israel, as it's called. The word Yahweh is the name of the Hebrew God. Um, It was actually centred around the worship of a variety of gods. And this was a competition. It was a bazaar of different ideas. And so these young men find themselves taken from their homeland, put into service, and then they instantly... Uh, taken on this program of cultural assimilation and we look last week in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1 where there's this moment where Daniel resolved that he is not going to be assimilated and he's going to make sure that his personal relationship and life with God is going to be the central organising principle, not the culture of the Babylonians. We saw how that meant that they chose to not engage in some things that the Babylonians were doing to them in in an effort to assimilate them. So we looked at the whole of chapter 1, and what I want to do this week is actually look at chapter 2. But just to bridge, I want to just return to um, uh, verse 20, which is like the second last verse of chapter 1, and it says this. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them, Daniel and his friends, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. We think of magicians and think of you know, card tricks, um, but actually, really, the magicians are, and the enchanters are the people who can interpret what they feel the gods are saying. These are the people who then determine the culture and direction of that particular society. Okay, let's jump to verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Ah, Bible paper, why are you so thin? <laughs> verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. This is their game. They are the interpreters of information. And in a society like this, who controls the information ultimately controls everything because the gods are the ones who set the scene. Therefore, the people who are interpreting what the gods are saying have tremendous power. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. Okay, that's a bit of extra pressure. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Okay, there's no HR departments that you can go and like, you know, contest this. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you were trying to gain time because you've realised that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. Okay, this is very early, ancient example of what we call today fake news and the manipulation of information where various agents will interpret information in a particular way to gain influence in a situation like this because information is power. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret for me. The astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. Now this is a problem, because... Daniel and his Jewish friends who are following God have found themselves amongst these ranks of these wise men. Now, some of this cohort of wise men are looking to other gods, are looking to Babylonian astrology, are looking to different things. But in the midst of this group of advisors to the king, Daniel and his friends are praying to God, staying close to him. But when this decree then comes forward, this then entraps them. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with, the wisdom, with wisdom and tact. Notice that. What enters the story? Wisdom. At this, Daniel went in... Oh, sorry, let me go back. Verse 15. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. The Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This is cultural pressure. This is an ethical dilemma. This is not the safety of hanging out in Jerusalem where everyone believes the same thing. This is not like being part of the priesthood of the Levites, where it's all based around the instructions that God has given. This is not Kansas, this is a very different place where pressure is on you, you're stressed because you have to make decisions, you're trying to honour God but in a sense you're also protecting your own skin because you could die. This is the pressure that comes being a believer in Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He disposes, deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning, wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, we're going to pause there. If you want to read on in your own spare time, this is a fantastic um, book of the Bible and you read more about how God works through Daniel. But the point I want to bring up is, at moments of tremendous cultural pressure, where really this Babylonian society is in a crisis because it doesn't know which way to go. The authority structure of this place, this giant ziggurat that was in the middle of the city was actually a place where the gods would come and speak to the priesthood and the wise men and then they would come down that ramp and they would go and tell the king which way the direction the culture was meant to go. This system was breaking down and there you have Daniel, but he's in the midst of it. He's not just looking on from the side. He's having to make hard decisions in his personal life, in his workplace, in his culture He is someone who at this moment uses the gift of cultural discernment. And the point I really want to make to, this is not just how he, he uses cultural discernment to not compromise his faith. That was last week. Last week was how does Daniel practice a form of cultural discernment, being close to God, resolving not to be culturally assimilated. This is now cultural discernment, which is unleashing wisdom As a gift to a culture which doesn't believe what you believe. The gift of cultural discernment isn't just for you and I, it's actually a medicine for cultures which don't believe even when sometimes they see it as a poison. So, that is the example of what it is to be a cultural discerner offering godly wisdom that comes directly from God, where does it emerge? What does Daniel do at that moment? He doesn't go and get more degrees. He doesn't go and watch a bunch of TED Talks. Him and his friends cling close to God, realising that the only source of wisdom and, and deep knowledge comes from God. So what we learned last week, that walking, abiding with God is actually what then reveals this wisdom in this moment. So we have this thing of like... Here's a guy who was in Jerusalem where there was this clear authority, it was God, and then he comes into this other place where there's this other authority, and this is about the various authorities. Now, some of the language that we've been using in this series is that we're no longer in Babylon, we're trying to do this, and resilient disciples are trying to do this in digital Babylon. And just been talking to a few people, what exactly do you mean by that? It's not just about technology, digital Babylon is a way of describing the 21st century globalised world in that we are in. And just to give you an example of this, so some of the ways that we then, will help you understand, some of the ways we then talk about, well how do we in our time and place then do something similar in the culture that's growing up around us? Uh, this is, well it's Millennium Bridge in London, crossing the Thames and if you walk across Millennium Bridge, coming up before you is St Paul's Cathedral. This was built after the Great Fire of London, 1666, by Christopher Wren, the great British architect who rebuilt so much of London after the Great Fire and as you walk towards it, it just emerges. Now, what's really interesting, I was actually talking to Ryan, um, who's in the construction industry and done building um, in Britain or whatever, and that he was saying that there's legal ramifications, that there's planning laws where you can't build buildings that therefore block the views of people walking towards St. Paul's. Now, I want to use this image as a map of, in some ways, the culture we see ourselves coming from in the West, where, yeah, look, there's malls, and there's government buildings and there's theatres and shops growing up, but the centre of all of this is the Christian vision, that the church is still central. And you see this in Europe. You'll go to sort of towns in Europe and centre of that place is the cathedral, the authority put into stone and concrete. So this is the idea of a Christian society. Stuff's growing around it, but central is there's St Paul's. We're not going to let things go above it, And there it is at the centre. And the West for a long time was sort of trying to do this, it was trying to keep Christianity at the centre of the culture. And so when we look at these issues of culture and discernment, we often see a shift. So the shift we see or we think we perceive is actually a move from this and then here's another place, Um, this is Times Square. Times Square in New York City, in many ways, probably the capital of the world. London and New York, you know, often battled for the capital of the world over the years. Here's Times Square. If you go there, it's an absolutely um, visual sensory overload. Um, It was the red light district um, of New York, um, but then it sort of changed into really a sort of complete over intensified shopping district. And heaps of people. Heaps of incredible lights, even several blocks away, it's just so bright, and all of them sort of selling something to you. And here, there are churches around here, but the skyscrapers and the buildings have grown beyond the uh, uh, church sizes. And here is then what we see in a sense, when we think about Western culture, it's gone from the church at the city to then all these shopping messages, all these different images about what and who you can be, and sort of this big sensory overload promising all these wonderful pleasures and things that you can have, and you can go and see a theatre production, you can get your financial services, build money, meet people, have an experience. Really interesting, what's in the front? In the front, is a cross. It's a Celtic cross, but even that's really interesting. That in the midst of Times Square, completely overshadowed, is this Celtic cross. At the front of it is actually a statue, and the statue is of a former U.S. Army chaplain, a guy called Francis or Captain Francis Duffy. Captain Francis Duffy was a Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic chaplain, and what's really interesting is one of the reasons that he is put there, and you still see this in the West, you'll see these hidden memories of Christianity, so some of it's around war stuff, so you go to like the Shrine of Remembrance, and it's like sort of weirdly Christian in bits, it's like a church, but it's not. Um, you see this all around the world, so there's this element like he's there because he served his country, but then also he's celebrated because in the sort of early part of the 20th century, he was part of this movement within the Catholic Church which was trying to get rid of anything, in a sense, theologically, which didn't agree with the direction that the contemporary world was going. So he created this theology which was all about, like, how do we get the sort of, you know, stuff in the Bible which the modern reader doesn't want to hear and the supernatural stuff, how do we get rid of a lot of that? So it's interesting that people like that still have a little space in this imagination of where faith should be in the culture, but ultimately it's drowned out, ultimately it's drowned out. So, so much of Christian thought and talk is like, okay, how do we, we were there, now we're here, how do we not get overwhelmed by Times Square? Discernment is like, how do I not buy all this stuff? How do I not get completely assimilated by money, sex and power? Now, that's the story. And so I've done talks really around this. But something is changing. This actually isn't digital Babylon. This is maybe modern Babylon, this picture of Times Square. Where do we live now? We're rapidly moving into a new place which doesn't even look like this. It's not even physically embodied. It actually looks like this. This is a map of the internet all these little connection points all over the world. No longer do we just go to a place like Times Square but then retreat to our home, and I'm not going to Times Square again because that was too difficult. I just want to stay away from there. We don't have that option anymore. We live within this giant digital network. Digital Babylon isn't just one place. It's no longer just about America. It's actually about the whole world having all these influences and going in multiple directions. This was, a structure of, this is a structure of authority which told us what to think, it set the form. This is a structure of authority which, which was at central to the culture and told people what to think. This was a structure of authority which set, set in stone a set of dogma and beliefs and how the culture, the culture should be arranged. This is a structure and authority, Yeah, it's a bit more broken up, a bit more fragmented, but those giant billboards are telling you what to buy and what to think. What the heck is this sucker? What does it look like to live here? This thing is this crazy network and this is actually freaking us out because where do you look for in the midst of this actual authority? Where do you find knowledge? What should you believe in digital Babylon in this place? So no longer do we actually look to what do the big sort of structures of authority believe. Now we ask the question when we're unsure, what does the network think? Here's this new thing, like, like people in Belgium are experiencing euthanasia for things like depression now, in their 20s. What? Hang on, what do we think about this? And what people will do is write articles about that, and when something happens in the news, I've mentioned this before, but this is a classic example, is then there'll be a news article about that, normally written by an intern, who may have taken it from a blog, And then they'll have like, you know, it's describing the issue, and then they'll report on a number of tweets. So it's actually like the network is wondering what the network is saying by continually looking at the network, wondering what the network is thinking. And to double check that, let's just go back to the network and ask what the network thinks of the network. So we're in this continual place where when we actually look for wisdom and knowledge, it's like, what do you reckon? I don't know. What do you reckon? I reckon this. I'm not, you know, and go back. And if you get the wrong thing, the network will turn on you. So all of a sudden then, if someone jumps up and says this, like, they don't get attacked by the institutions, they actually get attacked by the online mob. And so all these companies and governments and everyone get freaked out because they're actually no longer worried that the institutions are gonna come after them, they're afraid that people will go crazy. So in the past, you know, say a company downtown, um, complaints weren't that frightening. Someone would have to rock up and say, hello, I'd like to talk to the general manager of your department store. I'm really offended by, I don't know, your mannequins and their <laughs> aggressive hand gestures that they appear to be giving to. I feel, I feel like they're going to fight me. Um, and in the past, like, no worries. Um, write us a letter. If the person was you know, crazy enough to write the letter, maybe they go and meet with someone. You give them a low-level manager. Put them off, put them off, put them off. Um, but now you can write a tweet, you can put something on a Facebook page, so there's this quick feedback and some of that's, that's really helpful because some of it today, it means that people hiding behind power actually can get exposed, but also it makes everything weak at the same time. So we're trying to then ask the question, how do we be people who follow God, but it's not like the old world where it was like, well here we are and that's what the Babylonian institutions think, the institutions don't even know what they think anymore, and the network doesn't even think what it knows, doesn't even know what it thinks anymore. So you have these sort of two dynamics. John Robb, who writes about strategy, says, it's not even left and right anymore. You actually have these two groups. He calls them the consensus and the insurgents. So the consensus are like, I'm freaked out by the network. Here's the new rules of political correctness that we should all obey. We'll shut you down if you, if you go against them. And then you got a bunch of insurgents continually going, hang on, why are we believing all this stuff? And these two people are yelling each other online and this just drives this continual culture war all the time. And so what's really interesting is we live in this fascinating, fascinating time where in Red Church you'll have people at any time who are like, hang on, I've got a university and I believe this about God, but I've got a university and then the lecturers are saying this and people online seem to be saying this. And Silicon Valley platforms seem to be saying this, and that's putting a pressure on their faith to join the new consensus about what is the correct opinions to have, and then you have another people, group of people at the same time are like, I used to believe that stuff, but now I'm reading stuff on blogs and I'm questioning that. So it's this continual driving, washing machine of what we believe all the time. You can have a pastor who was conservative a few years ago all of a sudden, moving and deconstructing their faith towards what seems like the consensus opinion of the network, while at the same time, you can have the world's biggest hip-hop star starting to re- listen to you know, Jordan Peterson blogs, and then heading over here thinking, I'm going to do the most you know, sort of rock and roll thing in the world, and all of a sudden become a Christian. What is going on? So, how on earth do we do cultural discernment and wisdom in this place? is the question that is before us. And I want to say, I think this is a profound, incredible opportunity, because there is an increasing level playing field and this is generating continual cultural doubt. And just as Nebuchadnezzar came to Daniel and said, the system of astrologers and wise people and priests, it's not working anymore. I don't trust them because I actually think they've got ulterior motives and they've actually got fake news going on. All of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar in a time where his system of information and networks was breaking down, he became very open to hearing a different view. A young guy from Judah, follower of Yahweh the Most High. And I think at this moment, I'm not saying everyone, but one of the strange things that's happening at the moment is, and I'm hearing this everywhere, and some of this is some of you, there are people turning up going, I don't know what to believe anymore. There's an openness, because humans at the end of the day are meaning creatures. We know that there is a deeper meaning to life and we want to know what that is. So how do you do discernment in this place? Just a couple of quick things. Number 1, we have an abundance of information but a lack of discernment. Never had so much information ever before, but let me tell you, discernment is lacking. We need Daniels. Well, Digital Babylon is a place where the task of discernment has passed from institutions to the individuals. You've now got to decide all this stuff. You've got to decide what you do. You've got more freedom than ever before to choose and do what you want to do, but you've actually got to make all the decisions. You've got to make out you know, what job you do, where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what your identity is going to be. Is sushi racist? You have to make up all of these decisions yourself, and every day you're just confronted with them. So we carry an expanding choice burden, we have more freedom, but we're actually more isolated. So in the past, in a less individualistic society, the community that you were part of actually helped you carry the choice burden. You had less decision, less freedom, but you could carry that with a bunch of people. If economic hard times came on your neighbourhood, like in the Depression, You all of a sudden got all of this community and support and people looked after each other. But now, if it fails, it's on you. If it fails, it's on us. And so this is one of the reasons that people are just finding this new arrangement so strange. We can do more things. You can walk down the street with a teapot on your head and take an Instagram photo of it and some people will like it and affirm what you're doing. But at the same time, that might stop you from getting a job. (laughs) So it's these two things going on at the same time. Our endemic anxiety, our concerns about fake news, and our culture wars, all of them actually at the end of the day are signs that we're experiencing a crisis of discernment. All these cultural, these articles like this happened. Is it sexist? Is it that? Is it this or whatever? And then they're just endless, you know, for 24 hours. These intense things over, you know, what's this element of the new Star Wars movie? Is it bad? Is it good? And there's like online troll farms fighting each other. They actually, I read a thing that they've now got, got bots right that have got AI bots. So they they're bots that talk to each other, and they've actually discovered non-human bots on Twitter having arguments with each other. <laughs> and the writer said, in, in like 20 years, is Twitter just going to have no humans on it? They're just going to be a bunch of robots fighting each other, (laughs) maybe. So, all of this is actually science. Anxiety comes when you don't don't know what to do. Anxiety is a symptom and a signal that we're experiencing a lack of discernment. We find ourselves trying to discern in a culture which is highly unstable, emotionally infectious and unpredictable, where things can change very quickly. One of the things I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say to people at the moment is a lot of people are still in that old model of like St. Paul's at the center of London, and then we go to you know, Times Square, and how does the church prepare for a time when it's gonna be post-Christian? How does the church you know, prepare for a time when people are gonna have a very different ethical viewpoints to the church? I, was, I had breakfast earlier this year um, with a pastor from Eastern Europe. A smaller country in Eastern Europe, basically after World War II, his country was invaded by the Soviet Union, and the church there found itself going from being open and being part of the culture, all of a sudden, to being persecuted. They went from being able to have like big church services to literally having to meet in apartments and houses and having the secret police after them. So that's how they, his whole generation of Christians grew up of how do we follow Jesus at a time when the secret police can knock down your door and where there's pressure and communism is actually against what you believe and you've got an aggressively atheist government and entire society where young people were excluded because they couldn't be part of the sort of pioneers or these different communist youth organizations, just really, really pressure. Then what happens, he said that he grew up with that and then 1989 communism begins to fall and then all of a sudden they go from aggressive that where everything's controlled and then all of a sudden the church has to face this new reality of like Western capitalism coming in and all of a sudden it's like malls and, and online shopping and reality TV and, and Botox and you know, all this stuff and like you know, TGI Fridays, like everything coming in and then they've got to like deal with this, like get young people who previously were living in a very austere communist environment and then here's this new reality. And then he said what's happened in the last couple of years, they have a new government which has then reacted against that, a much, much more conservative government which has reacted against that, who said, hang on, we actually want to bring Christian morals to the fore and we actually want to, like, empower churches and we're just going to throw money at them. So Sarah joked in that announcement that we don't get paid by the government. He's like, we're not getting paid by the government, but there's a cost because the government's like, we control you now. So actually when we attack that group of people there, and he said in his country, there's virtually no refugees, virtually none, yet this tiny amount of refugees are actually really demonised. And like, hang on, how do we speak about that when we've got the money? Three completely different scenarios And so the problem is when the church just goes, oh, it's just going to be this one thing. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. This all could fall down. All of a sudden, the the culture could do exactly what's happened in this country and go, we're going to be culturally Christian again. And all of a sudden, we could go to 90% habitual Christians and 10% resilient disciples. So we live in a culture where it's changing very quickly. And what this can mean is that we just look at the network and how we're driven is we look at the network and then we just copy what it's doing. We're so exhausted, we just end up doing what humans do, and we're socially influenced by those around us, and we just mimic the culture. John Boyd, who was a US strategist, learnt how to do strategy in the extremely dynamic and changing context of aerial combat in the Korean War. And what he realised was that cultures which were built around institutions had particular ways of doing war. World War II was a classic example. You had these big armies fighting each other and it was just attrition. Like the people who, who just you know, could kill the most of the other people and blow up the most stuff won. He finds himself all of a sudden in jet combat. It was new in the Korean War, and he realized that instead of like weeks and weeks of bombing each other, which other wars were like, he's in these jet fighting where it's like milliseconds, they're flying in the sky. There was something crazy, I can't remember the stat, I could get this wrong, but something like, you know, the average life of the pilot was like eight minutes. Like, you die in eight minutes, from takeoff to engagement. Um, and in this place, it's like he realized that all the training that he'd had, that there was this very set way of doing war, he now lived in this moment where it was just instantaneous, and there was just crazy things happening, and he lived in this continual dynamic environment. And what this made him come up with was this, almost this way of how do you then succeed in what you wanna do in a continually changing environment? And he came up with something, you may have heard of it, it's used in some business places, but it's called the OODA loop, which is basically you need to observe what's going on, then you need to orientate yourself, come back to true north, and then you decide and act. And what's really interesting is that Boyd said the key thing, which so few people do, so much of strategic planning is like observe, decide, act, is actually orientate. And reading Boyd, I realised that this is ultimately what Scripture uses the word wisdom. That actually what the faith gives us at this moment when everyone is looking at this dynamic environment, is what Christianity gives you is an ability to actually step out of it for a second and orientate. Boyd said that a fighter pilot had to actually go back to what are the broad contours of the mission. If someone had given them to set a plan, that in the dynamic nature of an aerial battle, it just could all go out the window. You had to return to what are the first principles of why am I doing what I'm actually doing? And so the key step is to orientate. And what Boyd said is a fighter pilot has got to just keep doing this. Observe, orientate, decide, act, and then things could change again. Back to true north, decide, act, and orientate. And actually, he said the pilot who wins is the person who could do that fast enough. Now, I'm not teaching you how to be fighter pilots. uh, Thank goodness. But if you just want to open your Bibles to Matthew, verse 9, I want to just, sorry, chapter 6. I want to give you a moment where I think this this is Jesus with his disciples who live at a moment of cultural confusion. The Romans have taken over. Judaism is split between different warring factions. Jesus has come down. They're looking at him saying, is this Messiah? What is going on? What is happening here? And they're always asking Jesus questions. Part of the reasons the disciples are asking Jesus questions is they're confused because the goalposts continually seem to be shifting as they follow this Messiah around the Judean countryside. And in verse 9, Jesus gives them what seems like such a simple instruction. It's filled with so much profoundness. And I believe this is a moment of orientation and looking to true north. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. First of all, note, out of earth, out of the changing context, to the actual unchangeable. From the place which has been wrecked by human will gone wrong and competing contrasting factions all of a sudden look back to heaven away from our human desires that run in different directions than when God wants our emotions set back to heaven this is a reorientation to your original purpose hallowed be your name your name is holy The foundational thing is not what we are thinking, what we're doing around here. The central organising principle is you are God and we are not. We are human. When we do this in our own power, we mess it up. The crazy network that we're seeing and all the cultural confusion that's happening in the modern world throughout the globe is a result of what happens when humans try to create utopia in their own strength. And it's going to fail. And it's failing now and it's going to keep failing and in the failing the key thing is that we don't get mad and get assimilated by the insanity and the madness and try and pick on what side to jump in with we must reorientate back to our original message that God is in heaven that he is the setting point point. and then okay what then verse 10 God your kingdom What does kingdom, your way of doing things, your alternate to the Babylonian ziggurat, to cultural, even cultural Christianity that's not really following Jesus, just trying to put up a cultural order, you know, separated from an actual relationship with God, from Times Square or the network, any of those things, they're not the ways of God, His kingdom is the ways. His kingdom. We don't live by the network, we live by His kingdom. We're in the network but the network does not set who we are, what we do, how we operate, how we believe. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God's will needs to be injected into this network in so many different ways. On earth as it in heaven. So just see that, reorientation. God, you're in heaven. Heaven isn't just the place we go when we die. Heaven is where God's will happens in fullness and purity. Your will be done, your will, not ours, on earth as it is in heaven. And at that moment, you realize the genius of what the New Testament is telling us, that there's no longer the temple, God allows that institution at the center of Jerusalem to fall and now you're a temple, you're walking around and you have this opportunity in every moment to reorientate. To orientate is to seek what Scripture calls wisdom. In Proverbs, we have this beautiful image of wisdom. Verse 20 of chapter 1, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. It talks about her as this female figure almost, this incarnation. She raises her voice in the public square. On the top of the wall, she cries out and at the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will you mockers delight in mockery and fool's hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then repent because stop doing it in your will, do it in God's will. Then I will pour out my thoughts on you. I will make known to you my teachings. God is walking through the world wanting to offer his wisdom. And the brilliant thing is In the Gospels, we see wisdom walking in the form of Jesus. Get close to Jesus and you get close to the continual orientation around wisdom that God offers. In the Gospels, we continually see Jesus orientating through retreating to be with his Father. The relational nature of God's love offers us the ability for a life of continual heavenly orientation and godly discernment. The fact that God wants to be with you. If you're confused, come to the Father. You see Jesus going in the midst of his ministry, his daily life, to spend time quietly in the early morning with God. You have an access to God who continually wants to show you his will and how to act. And what this does is it shows that everything is faith. All the different stuff in the world What happened with Nebuchadnezzar is he had a crisis of faith that his advisors weren't telling him the right stuff. We're having a crisis of faith in this fake news moment in that we don't believe what everyone's telling us, from advertisers to governments, to foreign interference, to what other people say, to how people put up images of their life on Instagram. We're having a complete culture of faith and doubt about what the heck is true in this world, and so everything is faith. There's no space to stand that is not faith. And discipleship is realising that. And we step into it. This is not the secular world where they all don't have faith and we do. Everything is faith. And we're invited into the one true source of faith, which is the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who comes to have relationship with us and guide us. And so therefore... We're called to be citizens of the kingdom of God, called to live with a heavenly orientation on earth. We are enactors of God's will in the world. You were designed as a creature. Your operating mode is to be someone who listens to the Father obeys that in the world, to enact his will in the world, that's why you've been created. Some of you, it's going to be as a parent, as a single person, working as a carpenter, or working in finance, or just walking down the street and responding to the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to go and actually offer that word of encouragement to that person. In family disputes, in in, in personal moments of pain, you are actually called to be an enactor of God's will. And when we do that, we actually flood the system of the world, the network that's failing because it relies on human power, actually with God's will. And so my reworking of John Boyd's Uda Circle is this. We observe, but we observe with a kingdom perspective. We realise eternity is here. We look at things through, what would God think of this? What does this thing I'm doing at work, on my deathbed, through the, through the lens of eternity, is it actually going to matter? Okay, that's a godly perspective. Am I doing that because I want to do that, or is it actually what God wants? And we gain a kingdom perspective. Just read the Gospels and you see it dripping with Jesus teaching the disciples and training them how to view the world through a kingdom perspective. Where a widow putting in two cents into the offering is giving more money than rich blokes ostentatiously throwing in wads of cash. That's kingdom perspective. Two, we don't we orientate, but how do we orientate as believers? We abide with the Father, we be with Jesus, we let God's word, his holy scriptures speak to us, dripping with wisdom, always guided, central and authoritative, given to us by God, his spirit illuminating, the spirit who is the guide and the counselor walking with us. We do this together as the church. We don't have to bear all these burdens of decision-making together. Scripture tells us to get counsel. Go to your triad. Go to your discipleship group. Find wise people. Say, please pray with me. Help me make this decision. We don't have to do this alone. That's one of the reasons the church is there. And then we don't decide what we want through our own agenda or what the network says. We say, God, your will, not ours. In the garden, Jesus' central prayer before the crucifixion is, Father, your will, not mine. And when we do that then we move into acting, which is living not according to our will, but actually the will of God. And when we do that, the kingdom goes out into the world. This is not a moment to actually be anxious. This is not a moment to be confused. This is actually a moment which we are called for, built for. The world is hungry for wisdom and God's holy knowledge. Everything is now looking very shaky. What a brilliant time to be a Christian and alive. Let's stand. Father, we want to be your resilient disciples in the world. God, I just want to pray that you will grow our muscles of discernment. Father, help us to see the world. Help us not to be entrapped by a failing group of, of just fake news and ideologies and thoughts and marketing slogans about what the world is which is not actually true, political platforms that want utopia without you, all of this stuff that continually comes at us, even just our own individual desires in this network. Father, at this moment we see the world is confused, the world is anxious but you are not God. Father, you are in heaven, you are above all, your name is holy and so God, we ask your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be done in us. Be done in Red Church. Be done in Melbourne. God, give us your gift of discernment. May we be like Daniel, interpreters where the world actually starts coming to us. Not because we're forcing ourselves on them, but actually because they're hungry for meaning and they see something different as we are natural will in the world. So Spirit now, come And give us discernment as we focus on you and worship your holy name.